Ephesians chapter 2, verses 21 to 22. We'll begin reading from verse 11 through verse 22. This is God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May we go to our God together and ask for his blessing on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our almighty God, we thank you, Father, for your word, that your word is truth. And Father, we pray that your word would direct us in how we ought to think, how we ought to live, what we ought to say. Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts in our minds away from the values of this world. Father, we pray that we would not judge your world, sorry, judge your word by the standards of the world, but instead that we would judge the world according to your standard that you have given us, the standard who is Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would guard us, that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, that you would grant us a love for you, that you would grant us a love for our fellow Christians, that you would grant us a love for your church, that we might desire to be in her and and fellowship with her. Father, we pray that the good news of the gospel would go forward with power this day, that it would transform hearts and lives. Father, we pray that we would not be a people who are living in constant fear, but instead that we would be a people who live by faith in Jesus Christ, who indeed died in our behalf, And was raised again so that we might have life. Father, we pray that you would exalt your son, Jesus Christ. That you would humble your servant. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Here, as we come to this passage, we think about the very matter of God dwelling with men. This is no minor concept. Here, there's a tendency... For people to think about a church as a building, as a structure. 
And the oddity is that here, in these two verses, we're describing the church, the people of God, as a building. But I want to draw a distinction. So if you, if you look in Europe, right, you look at Europe, you see all these beautiful church buildings. And you go there on a Sunday, and they're completely empty. And you ask, why? Why is that? The church is not a building, right? It's not, it's not the property of the church. Rather, it's God dwelling among his people. That we come to understand a bit about this even in John chapter 4. When you have this dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And there's, there's this debate between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the Jews thought, hey, it's in Jerusalem that we worship. And, and then they had some other view. And, and then here Jesus is saying that that comes to an end. That wherever God's people are. It might be in, uh, in a subway in South Korea. It might be in a remote place in, uh, far off in the Middle East. It might be in someone's home in Asia. Wherever God's people are, there he dwells among his people. And we think about how home, home is where the heart is, so to say. That the home is a place where you can let your guard down. Home is a place where you feel comfortable. And this reminder that the church is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. It's a reminder to us that God delights to be among His people. That God delights to be among His people, worshipped and praised. That that is where His heart is. His heart is with His people, the church. Here... We've been studying through this book of Ephesians. And oftentimes, the warning is, ministers should never say, I'm going to preach through this book so I might learn it. Now, practically, what ends up happening is, we start learn and we grow and we see things that we didn't see before. That's, that's going to be true. But here, we ought to understand that Jesus Christ is exalted in all his glory. That this is what the book Ephesians presents, Jesus Christ and his beloved bride, the church. Speaking about the concept in terms of a mystery. A mystery that is revealed to us in the word. That God would delight to call a people of his very own. That he would call sinners to himself. That we might understand that sinners can come into the presence of God and not be consumed. And that this is a great and a glorious thing. How can it be that a sinner who is less than holy, less than perfect and holy, can come into the presence of the mighty God and, and not be consumed by his wrath? It's through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. We're brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we become members of his household. That we are built into a holy temple in the Lord. So here we have in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 21 to 22. Due to the church's crucial connection to Christ, she will indeed grow and have God in her midst. Due to the church's crucial connection to Christ, she will indeed grow and have God in her midst. We'll look at this in two points. <clears throat> The first one, the crucial connection to the church, verse 21. And second, the holy habitation of the church, verse 22. 
So we have here the first point, the crucial connection of the church in verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Here in the end of Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives us three pictures, three word images. And he uses it to describe the concept of the church of Jesus Christ. There in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. So the first description is that of a city or that of a state, that of a nation. That he describes a people who are duly constituted with the word of God. That they are citizens, that they have the privileges of citizenship. And if that weren't enough, he continues and mentions the household principle. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here the church is described as a family. And the people in the family then, were, we are, uh, so to say, we are naturalized parts of the family. We're adopted into his family as sons and daughters. We have no claims, right? We, have no, we can't claim God, you owe it to us. Except the fact that he adopts us as his children, and then we have the claims of, of sons and daughters. Meaning that there is nothing about you or about me by which we can say, God, you owe us this. If we're thinking that way, we're completely missing, we're completely missing what the good news of the gospel is. It's only by the good news of the gospel that you and I are adopted as sons and daughters and we have the full rights of sons and daughters. And all that Jesus earned, he willingly shares with us. And the claim that we have to it is according to God's grace. So that's the members of the household. And then here, in verses 21 and 22, actually verses 20 to 22, we have God's people spoken of as stones within a building. So built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And that here, the only way that the building stands is that it has the right cornerstone and it has a solid foundation. So the foundation is, is not, see here, we, we have this problem where the, the, uh, the American church, we, we tend to think of novelties. Hey, uh, we're, we're novel. That, how did you start? Well, we started out of nowhere. Right? We're not connected to anything in the past and to anything in the future. But that's not true. The Word of God describes what God is doing, what God has done. That we are founded upon Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, and also the foundation that He built with His apostles and prophets. Meaning that our connection to Jesus, there are other stones within this building. That was the Apostle Paul. That was John and Peter and James. All these people that came before us. We believe the same truth. We believe that you look back at Acts chapter 2. How the church, the early church was devoting themselves to the apostles teaching. To the breaking of bread. To fellowship and to prayer. Which is exactly 
what we do even today, 2,000 years later. You notice the agenda hasn't really changed. In fact, we're continuing to do what God has told us to do. Here, the big question that you and I must ask ourselves is our connection to Christ. So in verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together. Are you connected to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone? And if so, how are you connected? This connection to Christ must be by faith. Must be by faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the life that we live in the flesh, we, we still have flesh, we're not separated from the flesh, that when Jesus returns, he, he's going to raise up a new body, we will still be flesh. That Jesus, at God's right hand, has, has flesh. There's nothing wrong with flesh. God raises us up incorruptible. But we're told now that the life that I live, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. There's a new purpose to our flesh. Not for the degrading of our bodies, according to the ways of the world, according to our lusts. But rather, there's a new purpose that we live by faith in the Son of God. Are you united to Christ by faith? This is faith not only that, hey, there really was a person named Jesus. We can look in the secular history books. There was such a person. They're going to have strange claims regarding how he came about. I think some of the claims were a Jewish woman named Mary. And then somehow some guy, a Roman soldier, was involved. Right? Bastard child, Jewish woman, Roman soldier. Don't believe those lies. They're false. Right? God tells us in his word that our Lord Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the woman Mary was a virgin. That there was conception by the Holy Spirit. And this is why Jesus is without sin. It's not faith that he merely existed. It's faith that he loved you and he gave himself up for you. That when we claim we believe in Jesus, it's not, oh yeah, there, there was a guy who lived... 2,000 years ago, but that this man died on the cross, that he died in your place, that he died that you might have life, that he, he gave you life, that by his death that your sins are forgiven. That is what we believe when we say we believe in Jesus. And if you believe in something else, oh, I believe he was uh, a great moral teacher. I, I believe he, he was uh, a martyr and, and he, he was kind to people and compassionate. That's worthless unless you believe that he is the Son of God and he died in your place, the very death you deserve to die. And here we're also connected to Jesus by his love. His love is a transforming love. That knowing Christ's love, you cannot be the same person. 
We cannot be the same person. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You realize how powerful this love is of Jesus Christ? The love of Christ controls us. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you live. Here, the effect of Christ's love is simply this. That they who live might no longer live for themselves. That you and I should be those who are saying, hey, you know what? Because Christ loved me, I'm no longer going to live according to my own rules, my own standards. My life no longer revolves around myself. I'm able to see past my own nose. I'm able to see God's work in my life. I'm able to see the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And that you might say, Christ's love has changed you. So that now you live for he who died and rose again on your behalf. This is what we mean when we say, are you connected to Christ? And outside of this connection to Christ... Sorry if I'm insulting you, but you're nobody. You're nothing. Your life, the Lord is generous, whether or not you have 70 years, 80 years, 116 years, whatever it is. Your life will be here today and gone tomorrow. Your memory will be gone. But you realize that in Christ, all the things that you hold dear, that you will have to give up in this world... But our hope and our treasure is not here. It's in heaven. And this is why the world cannot understand. Are you willing to part with these things? Well, yes. Because Jesus has told us to live as Christ and to die as gain. If you're forgetting, if you're ever forgetting that to die is gain. Wait a minute. You're telling me that it's easy to die. It's easy to give up the things of this life. No, I'm not saying that. It requires faith on our part to say, God, everything you have promised me in your word is true. And this is why I can let all these things go. To die is gain. You think about the world, the promises of the world. What do they give you? They make these great promises to you. You're not going to receive any one of those things. They will work you to death and you have no, nothing to take home. They're lies. The ultimate lies. But Jesus is the one who gives you exceedingly great promises. And every single one of those promises that God has given you is yea and amen in Jesus Christ. They're fulfilled in Him. They're fulfilled in Him. Here, being connected to Christ, being part of this building, you're also connected to others through Jesus Christ. It's hard for us to understand that sometimes. When the world starts to redefine the nuclear family as my house, my dog, and my pickup truck. This is my nuclear family now. I hope you know I don't have a pickup truck, nor nor do I want one. But do you you ever think about how our lives must extend past us? And I think about how 
especially in the, the last two years, the coming of this pandemic, especially for younger people, younger people who have a vital connection to a, an electrical device, how lonely life is, how lonely life can be. And you think about what the Church of Jesus Christ offers us. It offers us fellowship. It offers us a place of belonging. And then you look around the people next to you. Wow, this person's old enough to be my grandfather or my grandmother. Hey, this person looks very different than me. I don't think we'd ever be in the same place at the same time other than the activities of the church. We don't live in the same neighborhood. In fact, we, we don't even have the same views on whatever those things are. But isn't it great that you can say, you know what? What we share in common is that we have a common love of Jesus Christ. He's knitted us together into one body. That we're functioning in this building. That we're stones together. That if we're connected to Christ, then these stones must also be connected to each other. So that requires that you and I look past at times, hey, I don't like this person's views about such and such. And the world comes up with so many of these things that can divide us. And we constantly have to be asking, you know what, am I allowing this person's other views to separate my love for him or for her? This is a question you should constantly be asking. Are those things destroying the unity of the body of Christ? We can each have different views. This is what Wayne and I are constantly saying. You know what? People are free to have their views. Right? We cannot, we cannot look down on people because they have different views than us. In fact, Wayne and I have different views too. Right? And he makes fun of me about some of those things. Right? But we ought to understand. Are we united by our first and greatest love? And that is Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. There is a need for other Christians. You know, I think back to this experience I had. <clears throat> I worked for this company in California, and little did I know, they said, Frank, you're single, and you can speak Mandarin, so we have customers there in Taiwan and China, and you're going to go support them. Said, is that right? Said, yes, that's what you agreed to when, when you got hired. Said, you said 25% traveling. Hey, we haven't sent you yet, so you're going. And, and there, you understand, that in, in these other parts of the world, they, they don't have a weekend. They don't have a Lord's Day. They don't have a day off. Until I say, hey, wait a minute. I, I'm going to work six days a week, but I, I take a day off. It's okay, fine, you may. And, and then, wait a minute, how do I get to the church? I, I don't dare drive in this country. There's, there's four lanes on the road, and they make seven lanes, right? So it's like, hey, this place is mad. This place is crazy. And... Then I, I call the minister of an English-speaking church out in Taiwan. Hey, uh, how do I get there? Hey, we have a family that lives not far. They're willing to pick you up. Well, wait a minute. I, I've never met them before. You mean I'm going to get in the car of a stranger? I stopped and thought about it. Well, he has a wife and a son, a young son. He apparently has much more to, much more to lose than I do. I'm a single man, right? And, and here, God was saying, hey, you, you work 14 hours a day for six days a week. Do you have a love for the church? And it doesn't matter 
You're, you're 6,000 miles from home. Do you, do you love the church? Do you love God's people? You're, you're required now, Frank. You're, you're required to depend upon these people to have fellowship with them. And after working 12 or 14 hours a day to long for, you know what? I desire to be with these people. Well, that was part of education. That's part of the education that I needed. Here we think about how we ought to be loving one another. The Lord describes the church as a body, a human body with many parts. And we should never be saying, hey, I'm an eye, or I'm a nose, and you're a foot. And that's not important. The last time I checked that, that big toe, you realize how important that big toe is? If, if someone lost their big toe, they wouldn't be able to walk right. That The balance would be completely gone. So much is, is based upon being able to push off on that big toe. What do you think about that pinky? Think about that pinky. If you're a swordsman, right, this pinking is vitally important because it's what allows you to hang on to that sword. So if you lose that pinky, you're in trouble. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Think about the description of one. One spirit. One body. One spirit again. You think about these different classifications. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. Are you able to see God's people as one? The description earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, that he made two one, thus making peace. The description of two, the Jew and the Gentile becoming one. And you ask yourself, no, wait a minute. I'm not one with that person. He has different views than me. He looks different than me. Well, here Jesus is saying, that he created a new humanity. The two became one. What are you saying? Are you different? You set yourself apart by some, some other matter of identity? And, and I ask you, is that identity then greater than your identity in Christ? Because Christ is here saying, he created a new humanity. The two became one. Do you ever sense the body of Christ, her peace and her unity, have been will be, and are under attack. You ever sense that? So many things that try to attack and rob the peace and the unity of Christ's church. We should be reminded of this truth, that Jesus came and he made the two one. Here, we're told that being vitally connected or crucially connected to Jesus Christ and to the body of the church, that what will happen is growth. So it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And this is both personal growth. This is personal growth. And it leads us to a different view about disagreement. Here, I'm often reminded that even the little one can give us something we don't know. Think about the life, said in 
the first, second kings of Naaman the leper. We're told that he was a great man. And you look at that. You look at the story of his life. And I believe he was a great man. The reason why is because that little slave girl from, from Israel could make a comment to him. And he would be willing to hear it. And then afterwards, after the prophet didn't do what he thought he expected him to do, his servants said to him, hey, if a man of God told you to do this, shouldn't you do it? Meaning that when you read this story, the, the servants in his household could actually rebuke him. They, they were not afraid to talk to him and say, hey, Naaman, the great man, if some prophet of God said to you to do this, well, shouldn't you do it? And for him to say, you know what? I'm going to listen to what they said. I'm going to do it. So also you think about how we ought to be willing to hear. I'm reminded. Lord gives us two ears and one mouth. We should at least be willing to listen twice as often as we speak. Is this what happens when you get together? Are you just mouthing off? Right? And the scriptures warn about that. That the fool delights in airing his own opinion. But are you ready to listen to others? Are you ready to hear? This is part of your personal growth. This is part of the growth in the life of the church. Here regarding church growth. The church is in a process of growth. This is a building. Pieces are being added to it. Stones are being added. It's a process. And we come to understand that God's plans and his ideals, his views, seem to be very different than ours. His time frame is very different than ours. Perhaps I might even ask the question, when you think about this building, the church, what are you doing in Christ's church? I'm not asking, what are you doing actively? I'm saying, the fact that you are in Christ's church should tell you something. The fact that I'm in Christ's church should tell you something. None of us belong here. We're all invited in by God's grace. We can't claim any merits. So we ask, well, God, what are you doing? You invited sinners into this body that you've made us new. When we think about the growth and holiness and what happens as we come together for worship and for fellowship, Ephesians 4, 12 to 13. The description is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What a great description that is. This is what we need. We're not mature yet. We have not arrived. None of us has. That part of the work of the church is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Think also, Titus 2, 13 and 14. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then that number about the, the, the concept of growth regarding size and numbers. Have you ever noticed this? <clears throat> notice this 
I go to a party, Christmas party, right? They ask me what I do. And I tell them I'm a pastor or minister of the gospel. And then suddenly it's as if they just found out that I have like, you know, the bubonic plague. And, and then everyone scatters from me, right? And suddenly I have, I have all the room in the world to move, right? And, and maybe sometime later someone will come up. The next, que- the next question always, always is this, always, how large is your church? Right? How large is your church? Right? I, I don't know why it is. Right? Christians, non-Christians, that's always how large is your church? Right? And, and I, I've had other ministers, church planting friends who come up with creative answers. Oh, you know, he's about 5 foot 10. Another lady, 5 foot 3, 120 pounds. And then, they, no, no, really. And, and, and he, he goes up there, I, I'm, I'm the fool. I just give the answer, right? So, but here you think about, what is the Lord doing? The Lord is building his church, right? The Lord is building his church. And we're told that he's building his church that is a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple in the Lord. That this holy temple is true individually. It's true for you as an individual. Think about the very description about you being a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 to 15. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Here, this is saying that you have been redeemed. That you've been raised up by God's power. That we are members of Christ. And what is that grace on the part of God? That he would dwell in the heart of a sinner. Isn't this the good news of the gospel? That others would say... Think about how Jesus calls Peter, right? And Peter says, get away from me, for I am an unclean man. But here, the good news is that Jesus dwells among sinners. He dwells in his church. That he dwells in your hearts by faith. That God redeems and raises you up as a new creation. Even as the scriptures say, the old has gone and the new has come. You need to have a good answer when someone accuses you. If it's true, and you've confessed it, you've repented of it, you can simply say, hey, that is who I was. That is not who I am. Because I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. He's made me anew. It's not some kind of outright lie or denial. Yeah, you're right. That was me. But I served my time or whatever, whatever it is. I, I, did my, I did my time and I repented. I'm a new person in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is, this is completely countercultural. It's completely countercultural. The fact that these Corinthians of all people who live the life of 
of uh, not celibacy, the exact opposite, right? The worship of idols and degrading of themselves. But God can say to even those people, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is true individually, and it's also true corporately about Christ's body, the church. So this leads us to our second point, the holy habitation of the church. In verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This idea that God dwells among his people. That God is not tied to a building. He is not tied to some kind of structure. The King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8, when he was dedicating the temple... This was, a, this was a big deal. Solomon's temple was being dedicated. And in his prayer, 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Here, Solomon is acknowledging, you know what? It wasn't my father David, but I who was appointed to build this temple. It was a beautiful temple. As he built it exactly as God had instructed. But he's saying that it cannot contain God. He can't be contained by the walls of a building. That he has no love for the walls of a building. Even as the Apostle Paul was preaching to the Athenians. Here, the Greeks built all kinds of beautiful monuments and temples to their false gods. And and seeing all these statues of these false gods in Athens, the Apostle Paul, Acts 17, 24, says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. There, they had a statue to the unknown God. In case we've missed one, we have it there. And there, the Apostle Paul says, Let me tell you about the God that you don't know. The true and the living God. He can't be contained by temples made by man. And here, God is one. He desires, he desires to be among his bride, the church. That when people gather together to worship him, when we gather together for prayer, understand that God, his special presence, is among us. It's not the church building. God dwells among his people. We read earlier in Psalm 46, verse 4, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The city is Jerusalem. Was this, there's some kind of a small river of Siloam, was it, uh, that is supplied Jerusalem with water during a time of warfare, right, when... Uh, Imagine that there would be city walls and, and that the people in Jerusalem would have water to drink. And, and this, this little creek, this little small river of Siloam, rather small compared to the Tigris and the Euphrates, but it was enough for God's people. We ask, well, what, is, what does God's presence mean to you and to me? It means that his favor is upon us. Exodus 33, 15 and 16. Moses begged God to be with them. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not 
in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Here, God's favor is upon his people because he dwells among us. It's an encouragement, especially when you and I have the rejection of the world. Perhaps you're tired of getting that. I'm tired of being told by the world that I'm stupid, I'm old-fashioned, I'm living in the Stone Ages. These are, these are all things that I've heard. Maybe you have some other colorful descriptions about you also. I'd like to hear them. We're going to add them to our list. Here, what we ought to understand is that the Lord knows this. He knows that we're constantly being bombarded and attacked by the world. So you ought to know that God dwelling among us means his favor is with us. That Jesus even says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in that same sentence, he's saying, go, make disciples of all nations. Meaning, hey, you're, you're, you're not only to retreat and, and, and you know, protect the ground that you had. No, he's saying, go advance. You're not to retreat from the world. He says, you're supposed to advance. I'm, I'm with you always. It's our comfort. God's presence also means his stability. Or our stability. That he's with us means that there's stability to the life of the church. Psalm 46.5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Have you ever wondered? You look at some of the simple things of life. Putting one foot in front of the other. Hey, it seems like it'd be great if our young people could have the habit of seeing the importance of the Lord's Day. These are the conversations I have with Wayne. Oh, boy, it seems like it's such a great thing if our young people, uh, younger Christians, a newer generation, that they would see the importance of the Lord's Day and show up, not once a month, but, you know, every Sunday. And Wayne and I were thinking... That would be so great if we could get our people to think that and delight in it. It's a small thing, but think about the stability of the church being dependent upon that. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. You see in comparison, in verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Despite what's going around outside, you realize it doesn't matter what's happening out in the world. God's presence means the stability of his church. The mountains can fall into the heart of the sea. It's okay. God's with us. His holy habitation is among us. And because of that, Christ's church can be stable. Here, God's presence also symbolizes his protection upon his church. Do you seek refuge? Don't do it in the world. The world's standards are constantly changing. You've got to put on your running shoes to keep up with their standards. And for some of you, I realize, some of me, well, my knees start to hurt, right? Uh, my feet don't move so quickly. It's hard to keep up with the world. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And he offers you his protection. Psalm 46, 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Do you need refuge? Do you need protection? Do you need safety? Realize that you have it in our God. That his presence is dwelling among us. That he is our fortress. And then you compare. You compare the humble church to the world. And you ask, how can it compare? When you think about the Apostle Paul and how so many of his letters were written, he wasn't, he wasn't in Tahiti. He wasn't uh, on some beautiful desert or a be- beautiful tropical island. No, he was in prison of all places and he was writing. You think about the glory of Rome. Some would say the little shack of Christ's church looks so pitiable in comparison. And this is where the eye of faith you and I must have to see that God dwelling among his people, among the rejects of this Roman society. For Moses to say, hey, I can be... I can be the the son, I can be the prince of Egypt, or I can accept the rejection with God's people who are the slaves of the land. And he chose what was greater. I'll identify with the slave people and leave with disrespect and with reviling. And you realize also that in this life, are you one who is identifying with the dwelling which is Jesus Christ? Trust in Him. Believe upon His promises. Though life here and now may be painful, it may be with harm, it may be with rejection, it may be with hatred from the world, but understand that we look forward to something far, far greater. That the humility of the church today, there will come a day when you and I will see the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, in all her glory in heaven. The worship of God, every Lord's Day, is but a foretaste of that, that eternity to come. But you think about these things, it's coming into God's special presence, delighting that he is among us. Realizing that you and I are all far from perfect. But Jesus is the one who begins this good work. And he will carry it on to completion until the very end. And we go to our God together.